Thank you, Paul, for that ministry and music. Today we're beginning a new study. We are going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians, having completed the book of Jude. Thessalonians is a wonderful book filled with comfort and instruction. It's written to a church that was going through very difficult times of persecution. And Paul encourages them in their faith and seeks to refresh them in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The message is actually a pleasant one. And so I'm looking forward to uh, preaching through this book as I thought Jude in some ways is a bit of a downer. Uh, This is a bit of an upper, if you will. Uh, This is a a lot of nice, pleasant thoughts uh, to think about. In preaching, I always wrestle with a tension between seeing the big picture as it were, and taking a close-up view in mining the depths of the Word of God. That balance between a good overview and then the significance of looking at the minutia of every single verse. Just this past June, my wife and I went to Niagara Falls. And I took a number of pictures at Niagara Falls because I really had to to get a feel for the falls. I started off by zooming out as wide as I could just to get the overall essence and beauty of especially the Canadian falls. And that day above it was this incredible rainbow. And I was able to get the rainbow and the falls and everything in the same shot. And it was gorgeous. And then I zoomed in a little tighter. And I looked at just the falls. And the magnificence of all this water coming over the falls. And and thinking about the incredible nature of these falls continuously going on 24 hours a day for an incredibly long period of time and seeing the falls. But in doing so, I lost the rainbow. But I got a better view of the falls. And then I zoomed in still further. Because at the bottom of the falls, at the bottom of the Canadian falls, there's, there's a lot of water. At the bottom of the American falls, there, there are these rocks. But on both when the water cascades over the, the cliff and comes down and, and hits the water or the rocks at the bottom, it just explodes into this incredible spray that shoots into the air. And so I took a close-up picture of the spray that's just shooting in the air. And when I took up that close picture, then I lost the sight of the entire falls. And I certainly lost the sight of the rainbow. But if all I had was the side of the rainbow and the falls, I'd miss out on the incredible nature of the mist and the spray and what was going on at the bottom. Well, in order to get a sense of the falls, I took picture upon picture upon picture, hopefully gaining the full essence of the falls. That is my dilemma in looking at the scriptures. How do you get the rainbow 
and the falls. How do you get the falls and how do you get a picture of the spray that's shooting up? That's always been a frustration to me. So, I'm going to try something different this time. I trust that you'll stay with me and allow me to do it. I'm going to preach through the book of Thessalonians two times in a row. I'm going to first preach through it taking real big sections to try to get the rainbow and, and the falls. Try to see how it all works together. So I'm going to be taking big sections, going through it pretty rapidly. And after we've gone through First Thessalonians and seen the big picture and see how it fits together, then I'm going to go back and look at the spray. Then we're going to go back and look at verse by verse in detail, reminding us of how it fits together in the bigger picture. And I think it's going to be of much greater value to you, for that's the way in which I personally study, and I, I found it, find it to be of great help. So, I'm going to be in the book of First Thessalonians for at least six months, if not longer, and probably it will be longer. And so, I have a suggestion for you. The suggestion is that you take the time to read the entire book of 1 Thessalonians at one reading, at least one time each week. Now, I timed it. I read through 1 Thessalonians. It's only got five chapters. I was able to read through it in five minutes. Now, I read pretty fast, so it might take you ten. I didn't take you twelve, but... I believe that everybody can make it through 1 Thessalonians in 12 minutes. And you can hold me to it. Time it. And, uh, and if you can't, then you can practice and get down. So anyway. Uh, but if you read through the book of 1 Thessalonians in its entirety. Okay. Starting with 1-1 going all the way through chapter 5 in one sitting. If you do that just once a week. For as long as it's going to take me to go through this, you're going to have read through it at least 26 times. And you're really going to get to know this book. And that's going to actually prove to be very, very helpful as we go back a second time and start looking at the spray. Because as you read through the book, you'll be able to continue to see the rainbow and you'll be able to continue to see the falls and the spray will become much more meaningful as you do. So I'd really ask you to start this week and commit yourself to just one time a week. And maybe some of you, you've got more time to do two or three or four times a week. You know, it'd be great uh, if you read it five times uh, a day, you'd be through it more than a thousand times. Uh, it'd be unbelievable, the value in this. So I would encourage you to um, read through the book in its entirety. It's going to Help immensely. Today, we're not even going to look at the rainbow and the falls. We're going to, we're going to back up even more than that and uh, just tell you a little bit about the falls. Okay, the, the falls, as I said, they're both American falls and there's the Canadian falls. And uh, you've got to view them from both countries. And uh, you've got to turn your head in order to see the two when you're on the Canadian side. Uh, you can't even get them all in one picture. I suppose you could stitch a picture together and 
do it, but uh, a normal camera, I don't think you could even, even do it. I guess you get far enough away. Certainly you could do it from the, from the, the heavens, uh, but uh, I digress. The point is, uh, we're going to look uh, at this, and we're going to just start with the background and uh, the occasion for writing. The background and the occasion for writing. Background of the city. Thessalonica was in the first century a large and flourishing city. Had a population of over 100,000 people. It was the capital of Macedonia. And it was the most prominent and important city in Macedonia of its day. As the capital of the province, it enjoyed numerous civic and commercial privileges, including the right to mint its own coins. And in 42 BC, it became a free city governed by its own rulers. I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17 as we look at the establishment of the church. The establishment of the church. To get a feel for why it is that that Paul writes what he does to this church, what his concerns are. So we're going to look at the background to the establishment of the church at Thessalonica. And that is in the text that was read to you this morning, starting at Acts chapter 17, verse 1. We begin by looking at the religious background to the converts. There was a large Jewish population present in Thessalonica, Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so there's a synagogue there. And it was to this Jewish population that Paul began to minister in Thessalonica. Verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. So Paul, whenever he went to any city, started, if there was a synagogue, started there. And meeting with the people. And then he branched out and met with the Gentiles. As in keeping with Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God of salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So he went to the Jew first, and then he went to the Greek. And Paul ministered in the synagogue for a rather brief period of time, three days, according to Acts 17, verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul expounded the Old Testament to them. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. means he brought a, an argument. He developed a theme. He had a purpose and intent in opening up the Old Testament scriptures. And that is, found in verse 3, Paul gave proof from the word of God that Christ's death and resurrection were in keeping with which, that which was prophesied in the Old Testament. Verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead. So he went to Old Testament passages to prove, to demonstrate, that all could see that the Old Testament spoke of the Christ that would come. His, his life and his death and his resurrection. And then the focal point of that message was that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. Acts 17, verse 3. Last statement. This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. So here, Paul is preaching Jesus Christ in the synagogue, proving from the Old Testament that the things that happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were the very things that the Old Testament said would happen in the life of the Messiah, and that Jesus indeed was 
the Messiah. The result was quite impressive. Some of the Jews believed, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Then a great many of the Gentiles who were followers of Judaism believed, verse 4. Along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks. Now, this term God-fearing was actually a technical term. Uh, These Greeks were known as God-fearers. God-fearers in the New Testament era were Greeks who adopted the Jewish faith and its practices. So these were Gentiles that were converted to Judaism. And these Gentiles that were converted to Judaism, many of them, a multitude it says, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have some Jews, a whole lot of these Gentiles who had adopted the Jewish faith, and now they're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a number of prominent women, verse 4, and a number of the leading women. So there's a, a good response in Thessalonica to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as a result of so many people coming to faith, a severe persecution broke out. The persecution, however, was not motivated by truth, but rather by envy on the part of the Jewish leaders that Paul was getting so many converts. And there were so many people in the city coming to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 5. But the Jews becoming jealous. So they were, were jealous. That's what motivated them. Envy. Envy. And so there becomes a contrast with respect to the people of the synagogue in Berea and Thessalonica. If I can just zoom forward for a moment down to verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by the night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. There's a comparison that's made between the people in Berea and the people in Thessalonica. And the comparison is not with believer and believer. The comparison is with unbeliever and, and believer. They were more noble-minded, the Bereans. Thus, they were worthy of emulation, to be held in high regard. Why? Well, because they were eager to learn, verse 11. For they received the word with great eagerness. They were excited. They anticipated listening to what Paul had to say. They sat on the edge of their their seats. They were ready to receive God's word. Next, they allowed the scriptures to govern their thoughts. For it says, they examined the scriptures daily. They, They went back, and after hearing Paul, they would study the word of God. And then, most importantly, they allowed their preconceived ideas to be challenged And simply did not dismiss out of hand what they had heard. Notice the end of verse 11. To see whether these things were so. 
You see, they didn't have a closed mind. They didn't just dismiss out of hand what Paul was saying. But rather, they went home and looked at the scriptures and said, could this really be? Could this interpretation be right? Does the Old Testament really speak about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? And could it really be fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? And when they came to realize what the scripture said, they were willing to change their preconceived ideas about Jesus and his death and came to a place of belief. Where, on the other hand, the Thessalonians, many of the Jews, were closed-minded. And when Paul talked about Jesus, they just wrote it off. They wouldn't listen. They'd had none of it. They didn't go home. They didn't study. And they didn't look at their preconceived ideas. They just continued on. Why I say that is important because the way I hear this verse most often applied is in exactly the opposite way from which it's intended. Many times it's applied in such a way as you should hold in suspicion what the preacher says and then go home and check it out. When in reality it is you're to assume what the preacher says is true and then go home and check it out. And don't just dismiss something if it's the first time you heard it. But go home and see if the Bible really does support that. Go home and don't just turn off. Just don't shut down. Just don't say, oh, I never heard that before. Or that that's not what I believe. That's not what I think. But put it to the test. And if it indeed is what the Word of God says, then believe. That's what the Brians did. But most of the Jews in Thessalonica did not. They did not. And so, an uproar. Persecution results. The persecution was not motivated, as I said, by a fervor for the truth, verse 5, becoming jealous. And the persecution brought together some strange bedfellows, verse 5. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. So the Jewish leaders leave the synagogue and go down to the marketplace to find some hoodlums, some riffraff, some people that love to stir up trouble anyway. And these guys are the kind of guys that you can get worked up. They're not worked up over any kind of religious fervor. They're just worked up because these Jews are coming and saying, hey, you know, these guys, these, these are a problem. You want to help us? Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll help you. And, 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 you know, they're not concerned about Jewish or Christ or, or anything. Because this isn't about truth. This is about jealousy. And so they get the mob together. And they come to Jason's house where Paul had been staying. Verse 6. And when they did not find them... Well, let me go back. Let me go back and read the end of verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Verse 6. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. So, 
Paul wasn't there. So now the attention shifts from Paul to Jason, who's in the house that they stayed, and some of the other believers. And so they dragged them before the city authorities. Verse 7. And Jason has welcomed them. That's the uh, accusation that they bring before the authorities. End of verse 6. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to decrees of Caesar's. Saying there is another King Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. So they stirred everybody up. Now, Jason enters into some kind of deal. Verse 9. And when they received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Now, what this pledge is, I don't know. The pledge is some kind of security, some kind of bond, if you will, for their release. And they're let go. Now, what the nature of the agreement was, we're not told. Was it that they wouldn't preach the gospel any longer? Was it that that they would be silent? What deal was entered into isn't known. But we do have verse 10, which is interesting. For it says in verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Now, in a cursory reading, it's easy to see that as saying they were protecting Paul and getting him out of the city. Which they were. But the fact that the text says, and the brethren immediately, immediately upon the release, I kind of think that that was part of the deal. That Jason, who had been housing Paul, would get him out of his house. And it was a deal that Jason was ready to make because it was to Paul's benefit. And get him out of this persecution. But anyway, Paul in the middle of the night is hustled out of Thessalonica and goes to Berea. Now, thus ends the story of the founding of the church at Thessalonica. But notice the unknown questions that that then raises for us. First, how would this pledge that Jason and the others have made affect the spread of the gospel? What was that going to mean for the growth of the church? What were they going to do in the future? Would they be naming the name of Christ? Would they be pulling back? Would they become silent Christians? What would that mean? Big question mark. Secondly, how would Paul's fleeing the city be perceived by the remaining Thessalonian believers? Had he deserted them? Had he 
shown no care or concern. As soon as things get tough, Paul is out of here. Is that what they're going to think? I mean, he doesn't even get to address them. He doesn't get to get the, all the, the people together and explain why it is he's leaving. They get out of prison. They come home and they help him pack and get out of here. So, what's the church going to think when Paul's gone? How would the believing Thessalonians then apply this to their own life? What should they do in light of the persecution? Should they all flee the city? Should they all hightail it out of there like Paul did? Does this become the example of how the believer responds to persecution? How could Paul continue to have a ministry to these individuals that he has left behind? All of those become issues in writing the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So with that background, now I'm going to fly through Ephesus fly, so you probably can't turn to these things. But I'm going to fly through 1 Thessalonians just looking at occasions for writing. Why does Paul write to them? This is not the way we're going to go for weeks. I'm going to do big sections, but I'm going to do them verse by verse, big sections. But today, just to get this overview, we're going to look at now why Paul writes then to the Corinthian believers. First, Paul writes to them to explain why it is that he has not yet returned to them. First lesson in only is 2, 17 and 18. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. So Paul says, I haven't been back yet, but it's not because I didn't want to come. And it's not because I'm disinterested in you. But I wanted to come, and I wanted to come more than once. But Satan made it impossible for that to happen. Application. It's good for us to consider what effect our actions may have on others. One problem that Paul encountered time and time again was the church's view of him for having failed to come when they wanted him to. Paul is repeatedly addressing that issue in book after book. For example, Paul writes to the Romans and says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Paul says, I've been praying about this to the Romans. I've been praying that God would let me come. I pray about that night and day. And up until this point, God hasn't given me the freedom to come to you. Paul writes to the Philippians, tells them why he hasn't come yet. It is an habitual problem for Paul, who's out establishing all these churches. 
that they want him to come back and minister to him. Well, Thessalonica, like Corinth, like Philippi, and like most of the New Testament churches, want to see Paul's face. And want him to minister to them. He can't be in all places at all times. But for Thessalonica, it was a unique issue. Knowing the circumstances under which he left. Why hasn't he come back? Is it because of this persecution we're now facing? Is he afraid? Is he not committed? So Paul has to address that issue. Secondly, Paul had been deeply concerned about how the Thessalonians were bearing up under the persecution they were suffering. 1 Thessalonians 3.5 For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. Paul said, after I left, I was incredibly concerned that my labor would have been in vain. The, the preaching of the gospel had, would have petered out. That when this persecution came and I was gone, and Jason had made this pledge, that the gospel would fall off the face of the map. And that the Thessalonian believers would sell out and compromise. And not stand firm for the things of God. So Paul is pulling out his hair wondering what's going on back there. So the third occasion for writing is for Paul to dispatch Timothy to the Thessalonians and see how they're doing. 1 Thessalonians 3.1 Therefore, when we can endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. So he sends Timothy to find out how they're doing, because Paul can't leave. In sending Timothy, Paul was in fact providing the Thessalonians with the help that they need. For Thessalonians 3.2, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Paul says, I know you want me to come. I can't come. And interestingly enough, not because he's in prison, but because he's ministering in Athens. He said, I just can't come now. But I'll send you Timothy and he'll teach you and he'll instruct you and, and he'll help you. So Paul writes to provide the Thessalonians with further instruction that is needed before he comes. It would appear that the Thessalonians were beginning to question their salvation and God's love for them in light of the persecution they were undergoing. Even further, they feared that the deaths that they were undergoing was a sign of God's disapproval of their newfound faith. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For this is how the book opens. Paul begins his letter by reassuring them of two things. Verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God. The first thing he reassures them of is that they are loved by God. 
Because they're not feeling very loved by God. Because they're being persecuted. Because they're going through all kinds of hardships. Some among them are dying. And Paul is unwilling to come. This is a picture of God's love. This is what it's like to be loved of God. And secondly, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, his election of you, that you are prized in God's sight. He loves you. How much does he love you? He chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose you. To emphasize their acceptance before God. You know, it's one thing for us to volunteer to be on somebody's team. Maybe they don't want us. The Thessalonians didn't volunteer to be on God's team. He chose them. He wanted them. And so Paul says, knowing that you're beloved by God and knowing that you are elect. You say, how did Paul know that they were one of the elect? Well, that's part of the spray. And we'll get there in the weeks to come. That's part of the, the neat stuff. But, moving on. As part of God's elect, they will experience God's love and be spared from God's wrath. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that wrath is going to be spared. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the reasons why it's so important to see the rainbow and to see the falls and then look at the spray is because a lot of times when people look at the spray, they miss the falls, they miss the rainbow. And here's a good example of it. First Thessalonians 5.9, God has not appointed us to wrath. It's not the wrath of the tribulation, it's the wrath of eternal judgment. For notice 1 Thessalonians 2.16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul is saying to a people, get the context, not that God is going to preserve you and keep you from all kinds of trouble and hardship and difficulty and persecution. It's not going to be yours. He's writing to people who are in the midst of persecution, trouble and difficulty and saying, but God is going to deliver you from his future wrath. You're not going to know judgment. You're not going to know condemnation. Because they're afraid. Why are they going through these things? God must be against us. No, God loves you. God chose you. God will not judge you. But these people that are persecuting you will be judged. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 They are going to experience God's wrath. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians to comfort them concerning those who apparently died in the persecution. What's going to happen to them? Had they met with God's disapproval? So in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or those who have died. The question is, 
would these dead saints miss out on the blessings associated with the Lord's return? Paul's taught them to look forward to the Lord's return and all the blessings that would come. But what about these people that have died? They're not going to be alive when the Lord returns. What happens to them? 1 Thessalonians 4.14 For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with those, those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. God's going to bring them back with them, is the answer. And then the primary application is, don't let the present persecution shake you. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4. So that no man may be disturbed by these things, these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass. Paul says, don't let the persecution you're undergoing shake your confidence in God's love or choice for you or his judgment. Because we told you repeatedly while we were there, this is what's going to happen. We told you you were going to go through affliction. We told you you were going to go through hardship. So, don't look at it in such a way that you're amazed when it happens. If there's ever a time when we need to hear a message like this, it's the day and age in which we live. Because there are a lot of people out there with a message that says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're never going to be sick. You're never going to have a problem. You're never going to have... Uh, any money issues, and you certainly aren't going to experience persecution, and you never have to worry about going through the tribulation or any problems. Paul says, that's not, that's what I told you. That's not what I wrote. That's not what I said. And so Paul writes the Thessalonians to say, I told you this was coming. And it's good for us to know what might be coming in our lives so that we aren't shaken, so that we don't question. Does God love us? Does God love us if we get cancer? Does God love us if a loved one dies? Does God love us if we're persecuted? Does God love us if we're bearing the wrath of the evil one? Has God really chosen us if these things are happening in our lives? It's not inconsistent with God's love. It's not inconsistent with God's choosing us. And our great hope is yet a future hope. And that's true of the child of God. Our hope is primarily a future hope, not here and now. And Paul unfolds that in such a beautiful way that it actually strengthens these people in their time of persecution. That's why I want to look at the spray. Because we want to be strengthened in that way. We want to feel the spray. We want, we want it to, to feel and affect our, our very being. So that we come away encouraged. We come away strengthened. We come away confident in our future hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ of the death and resurrection and being with Him forever and ever. And the joy of all of that. And then lastly, Paul writes to them to tell them of, of Timothy's report, which is filled with a lot of great things that I wish I had time to look at this morning, but I don't. So, in conclusion, in this grand introduction, first, 
We are to learn that trials and difficulties are not signs of God's disapproval or his lack of love for us. Remember, trials, difficulties, hardships are not signs of God's disapproval or his lack of love for us. I wish I had a dollar for every time I have heard over the years, why is this happening to me? Because there is this idea that if God loves me and I am faithful to him, then all is going to be rosy. And I'm telling you ahead of time, some of you are there. Life is not always rosy. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And hear this, or that you have been unfaithful. This is not a sign of God's judgment. For he has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The difficulties and hardships in your life are not God's judgment upon you. A tremendous and important lesson to learn. Secondly, there is a great hope and encouragement in considering the blessings that we will experience when we're in the presence of God. We've got to move our focus not just on this life, but to see the whole picture, to see the rainbow in association with being in the presence of God. This life is short. Seventy years. But eternity is forever and ever. And Paul says that he is renewed day by day while he looks not at the things which are seen, all the hardships and difficulties and troubles he's going through, but the things that are unseen. And he says he is refreshed. I pray that we will be refreshed the more we take our eyes off of the present and see a sovereign God achieving his purposes for all eternity. We learn that God in his grace is able to keep us and cause us to stand even in the midst of our trials and our difficulties. The Thessalonian church is flourishing. Flourishing. And Paul's fears were unfounded. And they are standing strong. So much of their faith is being heard throughout Macedonia. And we'll look at those passages. God can give us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, those who oppose God will ultimately and finally and completely fall. While it may look like the persecutors of the church of Thessalonica are getting the upper hand. They're not. And God is going to bring them to a swift and complete destruction. You may have evil actually being perpetrated against you. It will not ultimately succeed. In the end, God brings justice. God brings righteousness. God brings holiness. That's the background 
to the book of Thessalonians. So we begin next week by looking at the big sections of unpacking those ideas. And glorious they are. And may God be pleased to do a work among us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness to us. Uh, thank you for this wonderful book that has been written. And I pray it will prove to be of great spiritual value and enrichment to us. Not just for our own happiness and delight, but for our steadfastness and glory that is going to be brought to your name. Teach us your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing.